Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> That's verses 47 and 48 of Psalm 106, verses 19 to 48 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, June the 27th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, continuing to look at the book of Numbers today with chapter 22, verses 1 to 21. It's the beginning of the story of Balaam. Also continuing in Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, verses 12 to 22, and in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. So the story of Balaam is certainly one of the odd ones. There are a lot of odd um, parallels, I guess is a way to say this, between um, Israel's history and Balaam. Balaam is an odd guy, to say the least, because he does speak with the Lord. it's It's a pretty remarkable thing. He's not an Israelite. It's clear that he's not. He's outside the land. He's not with them in the wilderness. So, And Balak calls on him because he believes that, that he has power in his words and that he can make things and speak things into being. And so it's interesting that he chooses that. But there's listen to the parallels as we go through. I'm going to point these things out. It's really odd, to say the least, um, what, what he has. It says, so then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. <clears throat> and Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Well, what does that connect with? It connects with the, the fear of the Egyptians that they had concerning the Israelites because they were so numerous. It was a concern. But what we're also seeing in that, because there were so many, what we see in Egypt and now also here, is, is that God is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. So we're seeing a fulfillment of the promise and the prophecy that was given to Abraham. And so everybody is now concerned about them because there's so many. And we're going to hear that again in, in Balaam's prophecies here over the next couple of days. So Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab, and remember who are the Moabites? The Moabites are the the descendants of the the incestuous uh, relationship, let's call it, uh, between Lot's daughter and her father. And so Ruth, remember, is a Moabite, but the Moabites are considered to be people uh, that, that have two kind of besetting sins. One is sexual immorality, the other is idol worship. And the, the, the lack of hospitality, I guess, would be the third thing that would be there. And, and then that remember how serious hospitality is. It is probably the cardinal virtue that a person can possess in Judaism. And so Moab, Moab doesn't have any of those things. They're sexually immoral, they worship false gods, and they're inhospitable people. So that Balak, that king of Moab, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal. I don't have any earthly idea who those people are. To call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. 
it's it's an interesting way of saying who these people are. A people has come out of Egypt, and they would have been. And the reason they would have been a people rather than a specific people is they didn't have any land. You identified people by the land that they occupied. And so the Israelites were just a family. They were a family of people who had come out of Egypt. And he says, they cover the face of the earth and they're dwelling opposite me. So so he's talking about how, how many of them there are and they're just beside him. And he feels threatened by them. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Interesting perspective, considering what what the Israelites' perspective had been about conquering land. He says, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should. Because it's exactly the opposite of what God promised to Abraham. Those that bless you, I will bless, and those that curse you, I will curse. So here we have the power of God ascribed to Balaam. Exactly opposite the way it was with with Abraham. And it would surprise you that the sages of the Torah in the Mishnah refer to two groups of people. They refer to the disciples of Balaam and the disciples of Abraham. They see this connection, and and it comes down to motives. God wanted to make Abram's name great. Balaam wanted to make his own name great. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian— and who's from Midian? Well, that's where Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, was. And it's where Moses lived for 40 years, taking care of the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. So the elders of Moab and Midian departed from with the fees for divination in their hand. That's the first demarcation between a prophet and somebody who's doing something else. Prophets don't work for hire. They don't get paid to do this. They do it because God impels them to do it. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring word back to you as the Lord speaks to me. Another interesting thing that I have to remark on here that the, the Jews see in this is, is that, that he's disqualified as being a true prophet because true prophets get their wisdom and their prophetic insight during the day. Diviners, they say, get it at night. <clears throat> so the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, I mean, does God need to know? (laughs) Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, say, behold, a people has come out of Egypt and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. That's not a bad little summary. It's, It's pretty good. God said to Balaam, you shall not go out with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now, why does God care? I mean, he's not binding God in any shape, form, or fashion by saying these things, but, but he's proving himself and showing himself to the king of Moab in the same way that he showed himself to the, the Pharaoh in Egypt. He's showing him that, that he is God, and he's able to speak even to and through this pagan prophet. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Well, that's not quite right. (laughs) God, Balaam says, refused to let me go with you. Here they're saying, that's Balaam who's made up his mind not to do this. 
And so, once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. So he's trying to impress them and trying to show we really need you to come. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I surely will do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. And it was what he thinks is Balaam's decided that ain't enough money for me to come and do what you ask me to do. You're asking me to do a big deal. You've told me how, how numerous these people are and that you think they're mighty and you're afraid of them. And so, no, if you think that you can't go out without me, well, then maybe it's, maybe it's more costly than you originally thought to get me to do that. That's what Balak thinks Balaam has said. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know more what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So he rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. So Balaam has determined to go because God told him to go. There's, there are all these crazy sort of, um, like I said, you read some of these things, and, and one of the things they see in this is that he rose in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he went with the princes of Moab. And, and what, they, what they say is, is that, that this is very close to what Abraham does when God tells him to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, and take him to the mountain. He will show him and sacrifice him to him there. He does exactly the same kind of thing. Gets up in the morning and gets ready and goes in exactly this same way. And he's going out to the people who come from Isaac. In the, in the gospel lesson, Jesus, remember, has been on the way to Jerusalem for the final Passover, and, it, and now he comes into town after Palm Sunday and comes into town, goes directly to the temple, and drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So what he's doing, I've mentioned this many times before, during these major feasts like this, so many people were in town, they had to, they either had to bring their own animals for sacrifice when they came to Jerusalem, or they could purchase them there. The benefit of purchasing them there was nothing could happen to them along the way, and they couldn't be lame or whatever along the way, because if they were, then they wouldn't be able to sacrifice, and they had to be perfect without blemish and all that. But here, they could come into Jerusalem, and they could buy these animals that were already sort of pre-approved, so they, they could come knowing, without any doubt, that these were going to be approved by the priest. With their own animals, they were taking some risks, not just in travel, but also that, oh, hey, I overlooked something here, and then I might actually have to buy another one of these animals anyway. They also was a place where money was changed so that you could pay the two drachma tax to the temple. It took special currency to pay that. So you have money changers there to change that money and also to, to change it over into the coin of Jerusalem. But the final thing is those who sell pigeons, the ones who sell pigeons, they're selling a poor man's sacrifice. So it's, it's a, these are all predatory practices, but more than that, in some ways more than that. They're, they're taking up the area in the temple where the Gentiles could have gone, come to hear the teaching of God and come pray. That they, they couldn't come any closer than that, but, but there were so many of them that they set them up in the court of the Gentiles so they couldn't come close enough anymore to hear this. And it was so they could make money. <clears throat> he turned to them and said, It's written, My house shall be a call, called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So Jesus is continuing the work of healing. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The children in the temple are the ones crying out. Remember Jesus says earlier when they, when they tell him to, to quiet his disciples, what he tells them is, is that I tell you, if these don't, then the rocks will cry out. So now it's not adults who are crying out for Jesus. It's children who are crying out, Hosanna, say, Lord, save us now. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you ever, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived, and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. We've told in in at least one other gospel that it wasn't the time for figs. And yet it's a prophetic sign, not about the fig tree. It's a prophetic sign against the nation of Israel who will not produce the fruit that God had demanded. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is one of the very rare times that we see Jesus doing something other than blessing. He's cursing, and he cursed the fig tree, put a curse on it so that it wouldn't produce any more fruit, and it immediately withered. Now, God can pronounce those same kinds of curses. And so when he speaks against those people who refuse to hear his voice, who have known him and refuse to hear his voice and turn away from truth, then then he will also simultaneously remove his blessing. His blessing is fruitfulness, and the removal of that blessing looks like a curse from human perspective. <clears throat> and, and that's the thing that we need to understand. God's not going to curse us, but he will remove his blessing, and he'll remove his, pre- his presence. And, and if you think that I'm speaking something that's not true, go read the, the, the letters to the churches in Revelation. He says, I'll come take your lampstand from you. So he's not cursing them. He's just removing their blessing. And that's the thing we need to understand is God doesn't curse us. But if we refuse to hear his voice, if we refuse to turn to him and turn away from sin, then he'll turn away from us. <clears throat> and how does that go? How does that fit with the, the doctrine of, of, quote, once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints? It, it, it says that you were never mine to start with. You just looked like it. You were one of the tares. In the uh, epistle today, Paul's continuing to talk about how then ought we to live. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And he talks multiple places in his letters about discipline and the discipline we need to bring in our lives. We need to say no to sin. Peter says, if you you do that, then the devil will flee. So we need to, to, to take charge and say sin, no. Absolutely not. There's, there are things in our lives that we're going to react to, but th- other things, we actually are making a choice to go down a particular road. And, and, and what he's talking about is say no to those things. Say no to those things, but then also he's going to say, along with James, bridle your tongue as well. You, you've got to get control of your emotions, and particularly that stuff that comes out of your mouth. 
He says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for his righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? So, So does that mean we can do anything we want because we have grace and not the law? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He's making an important point here because he's already made the clear point that he brings forward from Habakkuk that the righteous will be justified by faith. But, but life is not, a Christian life, is not only about justification. That justification is the beginning point of our Christianity. It's not intended to end there. In fact, all everyone would agree it can't end there. There needs to be this second step, and sanctification is that. And, and that proves whether we in, doubt, in, in fact have the faith to be justified. Do we truly believe that, that we are dead in trespasses or not? And if we believe that we're dead in trespasses, then we also believe that we need a Savior because we believe judgment will fall on us and it won't come good. So what we need then is a Savior. And if He is our Savior, then we have been redeemed from sin and death and brought into the kingdom of righteousness and life. And so we we should be pursuing righteousness to the extent that we don't and, and we give ourselves over to sin, then what we're saying is we don't really believe that we needed to be saved. And we don't think these things are really all that bad. We don't think they're that big a deal to God. Well, he said they were. He says, so thanks be to God. We know that, that you were once slaves of sin and become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. I speak it in human terms, he says. He says, these are the best analogies that I've got because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, needing, leading to more lawlessness, it's a gateway drug, right? I mean, you start down this path, and then that becomes so pleasant and pleasing to you that you just keep going further and further and further. Need I say any more about that, or have you lived life as I have? So he says, so now, now that you've been saved, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus because you recognize that he is the ideal. He is the perfect man. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free with regard to righteousness because you were still in dead. You, didn't, you, you were dead in sin. You had no uh, responsibility to righteousness. He said, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So you can't stop at justification, he says. He says the, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end. Not the end of justification, the end of sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, is eternal life. He says for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We never move beyond faith. But we add to faith by becoming like him. And when we do, we, we show that we approve him and his example in the way that God does. We also show that we approve God's word, that we believe it truly to be true.
and no truer truth can there be. And so we set our lives in the direction he's given us, believing that it will be good.